Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon continues a study of the Gospel of Luke with Part 1 of Chapter 5. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome for our discussion of Luke chapter 5. Duc in altum, in Latin, put out into the deep for a catch. Jesus is calling his first disciples in this chapter. And while the people were pressing upon him to hear the word of God. Now, they want to hear the word of God. And they're standing in front of the word incarnate, the word of God. Jesus made flesh. The living word of God is who they're pressing in toward. They want to hear his every word. The people press upon him to hear the word of God. And he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. Now, Luke is the only one in the New Testament who calls it the lake of Genesaret. All the Old and the New Testament writers use sea, with the exception of Luke, who calls it the lake of Genesaret. And it's from the Greek form. It's Greekized, the form of Tenethereth, which is in the Old Testament. It was always called Tenethereth. And that's in Numbers and also in the book of Joshua, the Sea of Tenethereth. Tenethereth is an original, the Kenor is a harp. And it's a root of that word. That's the root of the word. And that's a lyre or a harp. And this lake, the Sea of Galilee, looks like a harp from above. It is a fresh water lake. I want to tell you a little bit about it because it's in a lot of stories. If uh, you hear the Sea of Galilee, that's what we're talking about. It's the same body of water. The Sea of Galilee is the absolute lowest freshwater lake on earth. In all the earth, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater. It's the second lowest lake in the world when you count the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is a saltwater lake. It's the absolute lowest. And then the Sea of Galilee, or as Luke calls it, the Lake of Genesaret. The lake, the Sea of Galilee, is fed by underground mineral springs, but the main source of water is the Jordan River, and you can see the Jordan runs all the way down. The Sea of Galilee is at the top, the Dead Sea is at the bottom, and it's the Jordan River that will be the inlet-outlet source for fresh water for the Sea of Galilee because it evaporates quickly in the Middle Eastern sun. The lake is surrounded on all four sides by mountains, Mount Arbel, lying to the west, the Golan Heights, which is part of Syria, but currently occupied by Israel, it lies to the east, the Sea of Galilee and the southern Golan Heights from the Jordan side, so it's also connecting with Jordan, and so it's a contentious area, and the boundary changes off and on, depending what's going on politically. Uh, So we've seen that boundary of the Golan Heights change over the course of history. Mount Hermon is to the North, it summits and straddles the border between Syria and Lebanon. It's 2,814 feet above sea level and the highest point in Syria, geographically. Mount Hermon is a mountain cluster. They get snow. It's on the southern edge of the anti-Lebanon mountain range. They get snow and they have a ski resort there. And the lines aren't nearly as crowded as Colorado. So if you're looking for a place to ski right on the border of Syria and Israel is Mount Hormon Ski Slopes. It's also the home to the United Nations buffer zone between Syria and Israeli-occupied territories. It's the highest permanently manned United Nation position in the world, known as the Herman Hotel. 
permanently occupied by the United Nations. Always, always someone there guarding the Syrian-Israel border. Israeli soldiers of the Alpine unit are dispatched to patrol that area. So when we went on pilgrimage, we went right past Mount Hermon because we're on our way to Caesarea Philippi to see a really important place where Jesus went, Caesarea Philippi. And this is the origin of the Jordan River, is right here at Caesarea Philippi. This is where the Jordan River originates. And there at Caesarea Philippi was a pantheon worshiping every god possible. The Greek gods became Romanized, and there's niches in the, in the red rock in this rock for every known God. And this is where Jesus brings his apostles intentionally. It's way far away. It would have been a very long walk, but they're going to go all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. And this is where the Temple of Pan is. The Temple of Pan, it's a pantheon of gods. Pan is where we get the name panic from because Pan used to chase shepherds out of, out of the nature. There's a beautiful waterfall there, the most beautiful one in all Israel, the Beneas Waterfall in the Golan Heights. And we t- were told in Luke 3 that Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip was the Tetrarch of the region to the north. And so you have to know which Herod is which because in the Bible you'll see the name Herod 50 times. But there are five different Herods in the Bible. So I don't mean to split hairs, but you got to know your Herods. You really do. And so if I'm ever on something, I always check which Herod was it because there's five of them. So it's Herod Philip. Herod, the great son, Philip, who's the Tetrarch of this northern region. And you see Beneas, Caesarea Philippi. It's named after Philip. Herod Philip, Caesarea Philippi, Caesar and Philip together. Uh, Tiberius was the Caesar and Philip was the, the Herod ruling. And you see the Sea of Galilee and up north. And so this was an ancient Roman city located on the southwest base of Mount Hermon. And it was called Caesarea Philippi. And this is where Jesus took his disciples. And it's this sheet of rock with all these gods in these little niches. And he took them there to say to them, who do you say that I am? And you can imagine him pointing to all, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said, oh, Peter, flesh and blood did not tell you that. But my father who's in heaven made that known to you. Peter, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades in the Greek. So this was a pantheon to the Greek and now Romanized gods of the old world. You see the hole there? That's called the gates of Hades. They would throw animal sacrifices to Pan right there. The gates of Hades. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So you see in context how that helps you understand that passage. The Sea of Galilee loses a lot of water. The Jordan River serves as the inlet and the outlet for the Sea of Galilee, the water source, a continual flow of water in and out, fresh water, making the Sea of Galilee a freshwater lake and a very important lake and a beautiful, beautiful lake to this day in Israel. One other name for the Sea of Galilee is also called the Lake of Tiberius. And so when Caesar Tiberius was ruling, he changed the name. He made a home there, a beautiful resort for him to go to get out of Jerusalem, out of the busy, and to go to Tiberius on the water, on the lake. And he named it, renamed it from Galilee to Tiberius. You think the people there like that, the Jews? No, Tiberius Caesar was ruling. And we know that from Luke in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. And to this day, this is a beautiful vacation spot for the people of Israel. They'll go up to Tiberias to get away. And they'll stay at places like the Caesar Tiberius Premier Hotel. 
you know, now it's not so bad. What happened in 70 AD? The temple was destroyed by Rome under the general Titus. It was destroyed, obliterated. And in 135 AD, the Romans banned all the Jews from the city of Jerusalem. They all had to leave. The center of Jewish culture and learning then became Tiberias. They went up north to the Galilee area. They took the city of Tiberias, and that's where the Jewish Talmud was written. The Jerusalem Talmud was written and compiled in Tiberias. So this Sea of Galilee is involved. It's very important in the Bible. Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, said this. He was impressed by the area, and he wrote, One may call this place the ambition of nature gorgeous, the ambition of nature. He called it a thriving fishing industry at the time with 230 boats regularly working the lake. So you can imagine 230 boats on the Sea of Galilee working the lake fishing. It was major industry. And archaeologists discovered that this ship dated to the time of Christ, this ancient Galilee fishing boat. It was buried in the mud, so it was petrified, and they used foam, and they got it out carefully, and it sits there in one of the museums. But this would have been a boat like we see today in this story. You can always eat a good tilapia there. They call it Peter's fish, and all the tourists go to have their Peter's fish. I would order the chicken, but... um, Try the fish. Um, This is where Jesus recruited his first four apostles, and they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in Luke. And so we'll see it today. What else happened here at the Sea of Galilee? This is where the Mount of Beatitudes was. It overlooked the lake, and that was his greatest sermon ever given, the Mount of Beatitudes. It looks over from Capernaum, and you can see the lake in the background right now. Today, there is a Roman Catholic Franciscan chapel there. It's beautiful. When it says that Jesus walked on the water, he walked on the Sea of Galilee. When it says that Jesus calmed the storm, he he was the master over the wind and the sea at the Sea of Galilee. When it says there was a miraculous draught of fish caught, our story today, it happened here on the Sea of Galilee. Now in John's Gospel, Jesus' third post-resurrection appearance to his disciples was on the Sea of Galilee, and it's called the Sea of Tiberias there in John 21. And Jesus has risen from the dead, and Peter has gone back to his old life of fishing, and he sees him across the way early in the morning, and he thinks it's him. And boy, he jumps up, throws his clothes off and jumps in the water and he starts swimming towards him. Is it him? Is it him? And, and he gets to the edge and they bring in the boat and they dock the boat and Jesus already has a charcoal fire going. And we know that there's only two times in the New Testament where there's a charcoal fire. It was at the denial of Peter when he said, I do not even know the man three times. And now here again at the reinstatement of Peter on the seashore of the Sea of Tiberias after it's all said and done. And Jesus is grilling fish for them. (laughs) Peter's fish, tilapia probably. And this is the reinstatement of St. Peter. This is huge. And three times he has denied him, and now it's three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? By the charcoal fire on the sea. So it's a before and after, and I want to compare these two stories a little bit because you'll see some similarities and some differences. Today, when Peter is called, he says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. When he's reinstated, he's being forgiven, and he's being reinstated as the leader. There's a church there that marks the spot. It's called the Church of the Primacy of St. Peter. It's a Franciscan Catholic church on the shore of Tiberias. You can see it. But this is where he gets reinstated as the Prince of the Apostles, as the head guy. Jesus forgives him. Jesus knew he was going to sin. Jesus reinstates him not once, not twice, but three times. Peter, do you love me? And that's the spot where it happened. There's the rock inside where they stood. Now today in Luke 5, Jesus was standing. 
by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Now, friends, it is no small task to wash fishing nets at all, to get all the seaweed and everything picked out of them and all the fish bones and all the scales and all the whatever. And so they're, they're washing nets. It's no easy task. They're heavy. They have to work together. This is hard work being a fisherman in the ancient world. They're working together. It's heavy. They've worked all night. They're exhausted. They're washing the nets. Not only that, they have to mend the nets because there's holes in them and these nets, that's, that's their livelihood. So they have to repair them constantly. Someone has to have needle and thread and be sewing any holes, any, any uh, defects in the net must be repaired. So they're washing their nets when Jesus walks up and getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land. Now, friends, that would have made for the perfect acoustical situation because going out on the water makes for the perfect sound system, better than both speakers. Jesus sat down because rabbis always sat down to teach. They must have five disciples to be a rabbi. Jesus had just called the first four. He has this crowd of people. He'll call the fifth one also in this chapter. But he sat down and he taught the people from the boat of Simon Peter. And when he had ceased speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Oh, ah! Put out into the deep and let down your nets for the catch. You mean the nets we just got all the stuff picked out of? You mean the nets we just cleaned? You mean the nets we just stored and hauled and repaired and put back in the boat? Those nets? (laughs) One thing Peter knows is fishing. He's a master at it. He's done it since he was a boy. He's a master fisherman. He knows when the fish bite. He knows when they don't bite. He knows what they eat. He knows the patterns with the weather. The fish bite at night. They do not bite in the hot middle day, mid-eastern sun. They go deeper and deeper and deeper to stay cool in the sun. They bite at night. We've been fishing all night. We're exhausted. They don't bite out in the deep. They bite around the perimeter where the weeds are, where they feed. Who is this guy? I mean, weren't you a carpenter? I mean, you're probably really... (laughs) You're probably really good at woodworking and stuff. Why don't you stick to that? Because we're fishermen. We know what we're doing. (laughs) Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master. Some translations say, Lord, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, at the command of your voice, I will let down the nets. Now that's a powerful word that he, on your word, I will do that. Just the word you spoke. Now, we had just seen last week the power of the word of the Lord, how commanding and how he taught with authority and how he could even drive out demons with authority that everyone was astonished and couldn't even believe. The demon could not stay in the man because of the authority with which he commanded the demon to get out. Didn't hurt the man, had to leave. We know who you are. So, it said that he was teaching for his word was with authority. And Jesus rebuked him, be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had been thrown out, he threw him down in the midst. He came out of them, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed. And they said to one another, what is this word? What is this word? What is this command? What is this man with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the reports of him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Peter had heard about this guy. And this word had gone out to every place in the surrounding region, and Peter's house is in Capernaum today with a Catholic church built over it. But right across from the church, you can see the synagogue where he preached that day on Shabbat and where he drove the demon out of the man. There's the synagogue right across from Peter's house. It's his thrown throw away. 
At your word, I will let down the nets. At your word, I will let down the nets. So they go back out into the deep and get the nets back out again and cast the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish, a great shoal of fish. And, and their nets were so full, they were breaking. They were bursting. And they beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Now those partners were Zebedee's sons, another set of two brothers, James and John. And Peter and Andrew are in the other boat and they have a fishing business together. And they came over to help. And they filled both the boats full of fish with bursting nets. So much so that they thought they were going to sink. That they'd never caught this big a haul in their whole entire life. These fish, at the word, at the command of this master, are jumping into the nets in the middle of day, in the deep. How can this man control nature? How can he make the winds and the waves? How can he make fish jump into the nets? What is this guy? Who is his word? What authority with which he teaches? The nets were full. They were bursting at the seams. They were tearing and ripping. Both boats, two boats. The early church fathers say one boat of Jews, one boat of Gentiles. But when Simon saw it, he fell down at the knees of Jesus. And he said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, isn't that an interesting response for the biggest miracle you've just seen in your life? Depart from me. Go away from me. Not, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. I want to be with you. I want to see all the other things you're going to do. Depart from me. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Why would he say that? He has a lot of self-awareness right now, looking face to face with God. Now, we hadn't done that since Moses. Looking face to face with the living God, the eyes of mercy. He is so convicted as of his own sinfulness when he's standing face to face with sheer holiness. And we know that Jesus can lay bare the hearts of men. Simeon told Mary he could, that he would lay bare the hearts of many men. He can read hearts. He knows exactly everything. He knows Peter better than Peter knows himself. He created Peter. By his word was Peter created. And Peter is standing face to face with the living God. And he is so convicted of his own sinfulness, his own lack of worthiness. Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Paul says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. Jesus Christ is fully understanding Peter. He's being fully known, fully pierced with the eyes of mercy. His heart is being laid bare. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He falls to his face. He falls on his knees. For Peter was astonished. And all that were with him at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon and Andrew, his brother. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Now, do not be afraid. Where have we heard that before in Luke's gospel? We're only on chapter five. Do not be afraid four times now. Four times this is the, we heard it three times before tonight. The first time was when Zachariah was confronted with the angel Gabriel. And he was full of fear. And the angel said, do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Same angel to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You're graced. And then the shepherds in the field. And the angel said to them, be not afraid. For behold, unto you this night in the city of David, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord for all men. What does this mean, this do not be afraid? Do not be afraid. It means what? You better be afraid, right? 
because some type of battle is going to ensue. God has a mission for you. Do not be afraid, Michael. I got a mission for you. Do not be afraid, Gonzalo. I have a mission. Do not be afraid. You're going to enter a battle. The Lord has a mission for you. So John Paul said, when he first walked out on the balcony after he was just named Pope, his first words, do not be afraid because he's going to bring the church of God into the third millennium. Is there going to be a battle in the third millennium? Hello. Yeah, there will be a type of battle, a mission that's about to ensue for the third millennium in the Catholic church, but the gates of hell will not prevail. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Henceforth, you will be catching men. From now on, you're going to be catching men, not fish. Henceforth, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. Doesn't say some things. They left everything, 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 and they followed him. They left most things? No, everything. 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 Jesus was a magnet. A really, 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 really powerful magnet. They wanted to follow him immediately. Enough that they would leave everything behind. Now, you know opposites attract. If Jesus is pure holiness and Peter's aware of his sinfulness, opposites attract. How about the fake righteous, the Pharisees? Jesus said in this chapter, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So sinners are attracted to him. Fake righteous ones are repelled by him. They want nothing to do with him. And I say fake righteous. So they're hauling in these nets. The nets are ripping. The nets are tearing. The nets are full of fish. Fish, 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 fish. Look at this other fish story in Matthew. It's a parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, which was thrown into the sea and gathered every kind of fish. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down. And they sorted the good into vessels, but they threw away the bad. Every fisherman knows this. You have to sort the fish. When you get a big haul of fish, some are dead and rotten and stinky, and some are really good and fresh and good, and you can sell them at market. So first thing to do is to separate the fish. Good from bad, good from bad, good from bad. Rotten, rotten, fresh, good fish that we can sell. Jesus says, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. In John 21, when it's all over, when Jesus has done it perfectly in obedience to the Father every step of the way and he's resurrected, they're again on the Sea of Tiberias because Peter says, what do we do now? I'm going to go back to fishing. I don't know what to do. He's gone. He ascended to the Father. I don't know what to do. So they're fishing again on the same sea. And the risen Jesus is standing there. And Jesus says to them, bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. 153 of them. It's very odd that John gives us a count. 153. Although there were so many, guess what? The net was not torn. Ah, some differences in the two stories, before and after. The number 153 is a 17th triangular number. 153 is the sum of the first five positive factorials of this number. We talked about it when we studied John. It's an amazing number. But not only that, St. Jerome writes that the number of living things in the Sea of Galilee, the different species, were 153. So they have hauled in this net after the resurrection. Not two boats anymore, one boat. 
Jew and Gentile before, now one boat, the bark of St. Peter, one boat. It has every single known species in it. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue is welcome in the bark of Peter. Every single species is welcome and the nets are not breaking. This boat can hold everyone. It's the church. Once fish are caught, what happens to them? They die. You get them out of the water, it doesn't take long and they're dead. In the water, the water's the river of life for the fish. They live in the water. They have special gills made by God. They get their oxygen out of the water. If you take a fish out of the river of life, it soon dies from no oxygen. Remember last week when we said that oxygen, that spiritual oxygen we need is the Holy Spirit? Remember that? And I had the hokey mask and, and, you know, the Holy Spirit is the breath of life. He's the spiritual oxygen to our souls. If the fisherman gets those fish to the market immediately, he can sell them. If not, they're going to rot, they're going to die, and you'll have nothing. They stink. They're rotten fish. So Jesus is fully forgiving and reinstating Peter... But he, he no longer wants him to be a fisherman. What? He just told him to be a fisherman and catch him. Now he's changing animals on him. He's changing animals on him. In John 21, he doesn't want him to be a fisherman anymore. He wants him to be a shepherd now. Okay? He says, Peter, do you love me? And he says it three times. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Not feed my fish. Feed my sheep. Ah, he's trading animals from going from catching fish to now to feeding and tending lambs and sheep. Everybody, Jesus is changing animals and no one seems to talk about this. There's 153 in the net and it's not tearing every species known to man. One net, not tearing, one boat, the bark of St. Peter. It's over. It'll be the power of the Holy Spirit in the line of Peter with the authority of the word of God from the line of Peter forward in an unbroken succession that will carry on the word, the authority of Jesus Christ in an unbroken chain of command. And it will be the Holy Spirit that will enlighten these men for dogma, doctrine, using scripture. It didn't instantly figure out everything, okay? So when you go to St. Peter's and you see the chair of Peter, it's not him in a fishing pole and a fish. It's him and sheep on the chair of Peter being held up by those four church doctors, two from the east, two from the west. There's Peter, there he is, there's the sheep. This is John 21, the reinstatement of St. Peter. And everyone does the sermon, they say, well, you know, agape means this, and filio means this, and eros means this, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? But no one looks at the animals. <laughs> feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. We're not fish anymore, now we're sheep, folks. And the fisherman named St. Peter Simon Peter is not going to be a fisherman anymore. Jesus is asking him now to be a shepherd. So fish are done once they're caught. They die when they're removed from the river of life. They can't get oxygen anymore outside the water. And so they'll die when they're caught. Now, you don't want to be caught into Peter's net and then die, right? You don't want to be sorted out and thrown away with the rotten fish. Once the fish are caught, they're done. But sheep have to be fed and sheep have to be nurtured. So Jesus says, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Sheep need pastoring. They need tending to. Sheep can't make it on their own. Sheep need a shepherd. That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter five, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.